0: It was January 9, 1909. Ernest Shackleton, Frank Wilde, Jameson Adams, and Dr. Eric Marshall stood just 97 miles from the South Pole. But their epic run was at an end, and now the four men had to get back to safety. Things did not look good. Food was dangerously low. The men were suffering from exhaustion, hunger, snow blindness, altitude sickness, migraines, and hypothermia. When Dr. Marshall took the men's temperatures, they weren't even registering on a thermometer, which only displayed results above 94 degrees Fahrenheit. Ahead of the men was a roughly 750-mile, or 1,200-kilometer, trek to the Antarctic coast. The nearest supply depot was about 200 miles away, or 320 kilometers. And then there was the issue of time. The expedition ship was scheduled to depart Antarctica on March 1st at the latest. That gave the men only about seven weeks to reach the coast. If they got there too late, well, that would mean another year in Antarctica. Everyone desperately wanted to avoid that fate. So today on the Explorers podcast, we are going to cover three things. First, there will be the push by Shackleton to get back to McMurdo Sound. And second, we can't forget that three men had made a go for the magnetic south pole. And thus, we will cover their record-setting journey. And finally, we will cover the aftermath of the Nimrod Expedition and talk about some of the people who have been part of this journey. This will be another long episode, so settle in for some good Explorers fun. But first, a few notes. Note 1. I want to mention that I have, a few times, mispronounced the name of the expedition scientific director, Edgeworth David. I have called him Davis instead of David. No harm, but I thought I would mention it. Note number two. I had a couple of people ask me about the book that Shackleton had published in Antarctica, Aurora Australis. People wondered, what was the purpose of publishing the book? Well, the first reason was to engage the men. It gave them a collective task that they could all work toward and keep them occupied and focused. The second reason was likely money. Shackleton probably had the idea of taking the hundred copies that they printed back to Great Britain and selling them to collectors. However, while Shackleton's expedition was hailed for its many accomplishments, he never did reach the South Pole. This diminished the interest in the book. Instead, Shackleton would give the copies to various members of the expedition, as well as friends and supporters. As a note, 100 copies of the book were made, and about 65 of them are known to still exist. A quick internet search showed that copies of Aurora Australis have sold for as high as $100,000 in recent years, and thus the book, which was probably another of Shackleton's money schemes, would ultimately produce a financial windfall, although it would take 100 plus years. Anyhow, that is it for notes. On to the show. I am going to start this episode not with Shackleton, but instead with the journey of the South Magnetic Pole team, and while it might not be quite as epic as Shackleton's trek, it's pretty amazing, so enjoy. The South Magnetic Pole team would consist of Edgeworth David, Douglas Mawson, and Alistair McKay. As mentioned, the 50 year old David was the expedition's scientific director and was in charge of the team. Mawson was a 26 year old geologist but was officially with the expedition as a physicist. The 30 year old McKay was one of the expedition's two doctors. The team had two goals. First and foremost was to reach the South Magnetic Pole, which was hundreds of miles to the northwest. To do this, they would have to go west, across McMurdo Sound and then head north along the Antarctic coast. Eventually, they would have to turn inland to the northwest into what is called Victoria Land. Now, the coast, which bordered the Ross Sea, was solid ice along the shore. But once you went into the continent, you were immediately greeted by a mountain range. These were the Transantarctic mountains, the same ones that Shackleton and his team were facing to the south. To reach the magnetic pole, the team would need to travel on the ice along the coast to the north, and then find a way up and through the mountains and onto the Antarctic Plateau, not unlike what Shackleton and his team had been forced to do. Along the way, there would be some valleys, called dry valleys, that they were to investigate. A dry valley is one of the few places in Antarctica that isn't filled with snow and ice. It would offer some outstanding opportunities to study the continent's geology. The team was to be back to the camp at Cape Royds by the end of January. Now they did have some wiggle room with the return date as the plan for Nimrod, once it arrived back in the area in late January, was to sail along the coastline and be on the lookout for the team in case they were delayed. Such a move could potentially cut the return journey by several hundred miles. For the trek, the three men would pull two sledges loaded with half a ton of food and gear and supplies. As a note, the men were carrying all of their food. There was no plan for them to eat any seals or penguins, which were plentiful, at least along the coast. Now, from the start, there were some red flags about this team. The first thing was the fact that none of these men had polar experience. They had trekked to the top of Mount Erebus earlier in the year, but that was a week-long affair, and they had lived at Cape Royce for the past six months. But the magnetic pole excursion was going to be for upwards of four months. This was far more daunting than anything they had ever faced. Second red flag. Edgeworth David, while an outstanding scientist, was 50 years old. And while he was in good shape for a man his age, this sort of thing was a young man's game. And the third red flag that I want to mention about this team was the fact that it consisted of three men hauling two sledges. No ponies, no dogs, just the three men. This meant that from the very start, they would have to drag the sledges forward one at a time. They would take one sledge, haul it ahead half a mile or so, and then go back and bring the second one forward. This meant that for every mile or kilometer that they covered, they would actually have to go three times that distance. This was really inefficient. And Shackleton knew this, as he had done the exact same thing back with Scott in 1902. The team really could have used a fourth man, someone with polar experience. Ernest Joyce would have been an excellent choice. But it was just the three, so they did what they had to do. The Northern Party, as they were often called, would depart on October 5, 1908. I want to mention that there is an outstanding map of the route that the men took that was produced after the expedition. I put a copy of that map on our website, explorerspodcast.com. I highly recommend taking a look at it, as it really brings this journey to life. So, from Cape Royds, David, Mawson, and McKay ventured out onto the ice of McMurdo Sound, first dipping a bit south and sticking close to the shore, where the ice was more solid. Now, almost from the start, it was clear that Professor David was ill-suited for the journey. He simply didn't have the strength and endurance of the other men, who were nearly half his age. This forced Mawson and McKay to have to work harder. And while the two understood that that had likely been part of the job, they quickly came to resent David. Mawson, in particular, was hard on his former teacher. Part of the reason for this was that Mawson had not anticipated that David would stay in Antarctica and found that instead of being a senior scientist, he was now overshadowed by his mentor. No matter, Mawson would gradually overtake David as the party's leader. The first big reflection of this was when, on October 18th, David handed over the task of leading the sledge team to the much more physically fit Mawson. Now, I mentioned that Mawson was a geologist, and to be honest, he had little interest in reaching the South Magnetic Pole. It just wasn't that special of a thing. To him, he wanted to investigate the various valleys and glaciers along the coast. That was his wheelhouse. On October 22nd, Mawson would even suggest that they skip the magnetic pole search, as they all came to realize that they didn't have enough food for such a trek. He said the team could do a magnetic and geological survey of the coastline, and then investigate the dry valley area. But David and McKay nixed the idea, and then, a week later, David would lay out his plans. The team would give up everything to make a run at the magnetic south pole. They would live on half rations and skip their investigation of the Dry Valley area. Mawson was appalled by this. The idea of attempting the journey on half rations was foolhardy. He would thus make an alternative proposal. They would go for the pole and skip the Dry Valley, but only if the men could have full rations. This would mean that they would have to start eating penguins and seals. Now, to be honest, they should have been doing this from the start, but the truth is that none of the three men really knew how to go about doing such a thing. They weren't hunters. They were academics and a doctor. So, without any other option available, all three agreed to this plan, and it was fortunate. Trying to reach the magnetic south pole on half rations would have been suicide. In addition to malnutrition, scurvy would have eventually cropped up. But by turning to local food sources, they would actually give themselves a chance to complete the task and survive. Now, penguins and seals were plentiful at this time of year along the coast, so it wasn't hard to find and kill them. However, preparing the meat was a different story. They didn't know how to butcher these animals, or which parts of the flesh to actually eat. They were forced to experiment with just about everything. The result was a mixed bag. Eating certain parts of the animals would give the men diarrhea, or constipation, and other parts just tasted awful. But within a couple of weeks, they would figure things out. This would allow them to cut the consumption of the prepackaged food that they had brought on the sledges in half. The seal and penguin meat, in addition to helping stave off scurvy, injected a rich source of protein into the men's diets. So the team continued north up the coast, looking for a way to strike out inland into the mountains. At times, they would take to traveling at nights due to warming temperatures. When this happened, the ice along the shore softened. It was easier to pull the sledges on hard ice. Also, several times on this excursion, as the team went, they would set up supply depots for the return journey. This would lighten their load as they progressed. By late November, they knew their time was running short. They had to head up into the mountains, get to the magnetic pole, return to the coast, and reach camp. It was just not realistic to believe that it could be done. And thus, they came to the conclusion that they would not go all the way back to the base at Camp Royds. Instead, their plan was simply to get back to the coast along the Ross Sea by February 1st and signal Nimrod. The risk was if they were late. If they didn't get back to the coast in time, there was a chance that Nimrod would never find them, but that was a risk they were now prepared to take. So the team would continue up the coast. A couple of times, they would face some challenges. One was crossing the norden Ice Tongue, a strip of land that stuck out into the Ross Sea. The landmass was covered in a glacier, and the team feared it would be impassable, meaning they would have to go around the tongue. However, they were lucky, and the glacier was stable and easy to cross. Thus, obstacle number one was overcome. The second issue was the Dragalski Ice Tongue, which was reached on December 1st and was much more difficult. This section of land was about 20 miles deep and stuck out into the raw sea an equal distance. This section was littered with crevasses and ravines, and the going was painfully slow. The team would even have to retreat back to the coast at one point and try another route. Because of the deep crevasses and ravines, they would often have to unload the sledges and lower them down or pull them up to keep moving forward. The team would slowly inch north and eventually cross the Drygalski Ice Tongue on December 11th. If you do the math, you can see that they only made a couple of miles a day due to the difficult conditions. At this point, the men had to go northwest into the mountains if they were going to reach the magnetic pole. For this, they would downsize things to one sledge, a wise decision, but it was still five to 600 pounds of provisions, or 225 to 270 kilos. They would take with them seven weeks of food. To get to the magnetic pole, they had to go up a glacier and into the mountains and onto the Antarctic Plateau. This was a distance of nearly 300 miles, or 480 kilometers, and an altitude gain of around 8,000 feet, or 2,440 meters. There would be no more fresh meat, so what they took with them was all that they would have. They would have to get back to the coast by February 1st. By the way, before departing, David would wander about 6 meters, or 20 feet, from the tent and have the surface suddenly give out under his weight. The professor was able to grab both sides of the crevasse that he had fallen into, but the ice was very unstable. Luckily, Mawson was in the tent, and he was able to rush out and help prevent his comrade from falling into what David called, quote, the abyss, end quote. So up into the mountains went David, Mawson, and McKay. It was a difficult climb, primarily due to having to haul the heavy sledge. Mawson, who usually led the way, fell into crevasses many times, but he was always roped to the sledge and the other men. It didn't help that Professor David grew more and more detached. He was slow and apathetic. Both McKay and Mawson resented David's lack of aid. On December 27th, the team found the surface hardened considerably, and the going would become much easier. They were able to go 12 miles, or 90 kilometers, that day. As a note, the climb here was different from what Shackleton had experienced in the south. The ascent up the glacier was only about 3,000 feet, or 915 meters, and from there, it was more of a gradual rise into the interior. Progress toward the magnetic south pole was steady. By the end of December, the team was at an altitude of about 6,000 feet, or 1,830 meters. As the team reached an altitude of about 7,000 feet, or 2,135 meters, David's physical and mental issues increased as altitude sickness became a problem. David did little of the physical work, and he had a difficult time simply processing some questions. Mawson took on more and more of the decision-making during all of this. In addition to the altitude, you can add in bitter cold and winds, a scorching sun, and reduced rations as problems for the team. As you would expect, the men's physical and mental health was flagging. On January 13, 1909, Mawson would take a reading and determine that the magnetic pole was actually 57 miles further away than he had originally calculated. This was disheartening news. Everyone knew that they were at their wit's end. They would need at least four more days to reach the pole, which only gave them two weeks to cover the almost 300 miles. To get back to the coast and signal Nimrod. Interestingly, it was Mawson, who had not really cared about reaching the pole, who advocated for continuing the quest, and thus they pushed on. On January 17, 1909, Mawson would take measurements and announce that they were in the area of the South Magnetic Pole. That was good enough. The location was 72 degrees, 15 minutes south, 155 degrees, 16 minutes east, at an elevation of 7,260 feet, or 2,210 meters. The men, who were thoroughly exhausted and hungry, planted a flag at the spot and claimed the region for the British Empire in a subdued ceremony. Now, I want to stress that the team knew that they were not exactly at the Magnetic South Pole. The truth is that making calculations this close to the pole is enormously difficult. The location of the pole can, literally, change from one day to the next. I've read that to get a precise location, it can take weeks of calculations. So, what David, Mawson, and McKay had done was close enough. The big thing now was that they had to get back to the coast, and they only had two weeks to do it. They needed to cover upwards of 20 miles a day, or 32 kilometers, to reach the coast and rendezvous with Nimrod. It would not be easy, but the men had some things on their side. First, the wind was at their backs. To not have to walk into the wind was a huge bonus, and one day they even created a kind of sail for the sledge and let the wind do a lot of their work. Second, they were going downhill. Again, huge advantage here. Third thing was luck. The weather was good for much of the return journey, and the men were able to still see the path that they had taken coming inland. This meant that they could move quicker as they didn't have to calculate direction. As a result, progress was good, 16 to 21 miles, or 26 to 34 kilometers, each day. However, food was becoming a major issue as the men were on the barest of rations. Despite their waning physical condition, the team would push hard to the coast, and on January 31st, they were only 18 miles, or 30 kilometers, from their destination. However, the last stretch of the march was over increasingly difficult terrain, plus a major snowstorm hit. The result was heavy snow and slow progress. Mawson said it was, quote, an awful day of despair, disappointment, hard traveling, agonizing waiting, forever falling down crevasses, end quote. The men were so close, but also so near to falling apart physically and mentally. David was struggling badly with the strain. Mawson called him, quote, half-demented, And doctor McKay was so concerned he insisted that David officially hand command over to Mawson, or he would pronounce him insane. Professor David would agree to this. The three men would inch their way to the coast, reaching their supply depot on february third, two days late. The men were disheartened, despite eating some fresh meat for the first time in seven weeks. It was possible Nimrod had passed them by, and they would have to proceed back to Cape Royds on foot, a two hundred mile or three hundred and twenty kilometer journey. If that happened, there was a good chance that they would miss their ride home and be forced to spend another year on the continent. The next day, the men debated their future. Should they stay at the depot for a week or two and hope Nimrod returned? Or should they leave a message and start the trek back to Cape Royds? As they debated the merits of each option, there was a sudden loud bang from outside. The men could not believe it. It was a rocket from Nimrod. They rushed out of their tent and raced across the ice, and there, not a quarter of a mile away, the ship, now captained by Frederick Evans, who had been the commander of the Cunha, was heading toward them. The men cheered and waved, and aboard Nimrod, a roar came from the crew at the sight of their comrades. The discovery of the men had been lucky. Nimrod had actually passed by them the day before, but had seen nothing, due to the fact that the location that they were at had been obscured by snow. Captain Evans had thus decided to give the location another look over as the weather was clearer. This time, they would spot a flag and the team's green tent. Now, the drama of the magnetic south pole team was not quite over, and that's because as the men rushed out of the tent, Mawson, who was in the lead, would, in all of the excitement, not see a 20-foot-deep crevasse before him. And boom, down the man went. Luckily, Mawson was not seriously injured in the fall, but David and McKay were so exhausted they couldn't get him out. They would wait for a party from Nimrod to rescue him. It had been a very close call for the young geologist. In short order, the three explorers, the first men to ever reach the magnetic south pole, were on board Nimrod. Now, I do want to mention that Nimrod would have another pickup to do, and that was the team that was exploring the Dry Valley area of the Western Mountains. This included Philip Brocklehurst, Bertram Armitage, and Raymond Priestley. These men, by the way, had done some great scientific research in the mountains, and they had had their share of close calls, but in the end they had made it back to the coast, their job well done. The journey of the Magnetic South Pole team had been an unqualified success, despite all the challenges they had faced. Over the course of 122 days, they had gone 1260 miles, 2,000 kilometers, this included 740 miles, or 1,190 kilometers, relaying sledges. It was the longest man-hauling feat ever achieved. They had done scientific studies, mapped glaciers and mountains, and of course, reached the Magnetic South Pole. Job well done. One final note about the excursion. Professor David would lament the missed opportunities. The team, he said, should have used dogs. And from the start, they should have planned on eating penguins and seals. This would have meant having a person who knew how to capture, prepare, and cook the animals. All of this would have meant that they could have carried less, traveled faster, and not endured so many hardships. No matter, the magnetic south pole team had done a heck of a job. I will talk a bit more about the team at the end of this episode when we wrap things up. But for now, the men were safely back aboard Nimrod and heading back to Cape Royds. And now, the only team members left on the ice were Shackleton and the rest of the geographic pole party. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Ernest Shackleton and his three companions had, wisely, given up their quest to reach the pole. If they had tried, they might have made it, but they would have died of starvation on their return journey. But, as noted, Shackleton had gotten within 100 miles of the South Pole, and in the process shattered the farthest South record. He and his companions now stood on the Antarctic Plateau, the first people to ever do so, at an altitude approaching 10,000 feet, or about 3,000 meters. All around them was an expanse of white, nothing else. By the way, something mostly unrelated to this podcast, but which I thought was cool and did not know prior to researching this show, the South Pole is actually located very near to sea level, at about 400 feet, or 122 meters. The ice at the pole, however, is 8,900 feet thick, or 2,710 meters. Just thought I'd share that nerdy piece of geography trivia. Anyhow, it was time for Shackleton and his men to head back. However, that was not going to be easy. The men were suffering from exhaustion, malnutrition, and hypothermia. Food was dangerously low, and the nearest supply depot was about 200 miles, or 320 kilometers, away. The coast was roughly 750 miles, or 1,200 kilometers, to the north, and they had to reach it within seven weeks, as Nimrod had orders to head back to New Zealand by March 1st. And if the ice became dangerous, the little ship might even have to depart earlier. All this meant that the team had a long journey ahead of them, and they would need to cover about 15 miles, or 24 kilometers, a day. That would not be easy. However, on the positive side, they were going downhill and they had the wind at their backs. Now, I want to note that the team was heading back toward the Transantarctic Mountains, but they could not see the mountains from where they were. The men set off on January 10th. They had to retrace their path, basically following their own tracks in the snow. Without the mountains, there were no landmarks to guide them. Thus, there was an additional urgency to get moving. They needed to get the mountains in sight. If they could do that, they could align their route north. What they couldn't afford was for their inbound tracks to be obscured by the winds of the plateau before they came in sight of the mountains. Once that happened, it would be extremely difficult to find the supply depot and the food that they needed to survive. To aid with their push north, the men turned the floor cloth of their tent into a sail and let nature help with the sledge. As a result, they would make 21 and 19 miles, or 33 and 30 kilometers, on their first two days. They would routinely go 20 miles a day at this time, This was crucial as the winds were beginning to blow away the team's tracks. The next supply depot, at the head of the Beardmore Glacier, could not be missed. Shackleton even admitted that it had been a huge risk to place the depot in such a featureless place. And frankly, if they did miss it, they would die. That's how low their food was at this point. Thankfully, the weather would hold and the team moved north at a steady pace. They would sight the mountains on January 16th, a huge relief. Now they had some landmarks to guide them, even if their tracks were swallowed by the fierce winds of the Antarctic Plateau. On January 19th, the men traveled an astonishing 29 miles, or 46 kilometers. The following day, they would reach the depot. From there, they could head down Beardmore Glacier. Now, I have mentioned the team's precarious food situation. They essentially were living from supply depot to supply depot. The food that they had stored at each was really the bare minimum for their survival, and they couldn't afford any delays. And while the food situation was perilous, just as bad was the men's deteriorating health. Over the past couple of weeks, it had become clear that Shackleton was flagging badly, more acutely than any of the men. He had, on more than one occasion, simply collapsed. He had simply pushed himself so hard to get as far as possible, and now it was all catching up to him. His headaches were brutal, and as we have noted in the past, Shackleton likely had a heart ailment, and being at 9,000 feet was taking an extra toll on him, likely affecting his heart and lungs. Marshall told Shackleton that he needed to ease up, but the boss fought the suggestion. He didn't want a repeat of the Discovery expedition, with him being labeled as an invalid. The men, however, were amazed at his willpower. Even Marshall, who hated Shackleton, was impressed. Despite this, Shackleton finally succumbed to the strain of the past three months. On January 21st, he couldn't help pull the sledge. His pulse was weak and irregular. Shackleton had simply pushed himself to the edge. Marshall had to keep a close eye on him. The good thing going forward was that the men were heading down Beardmore Glacier and leaving behind the bitter cold and brutal winds of the plateau. Now, at this point, it was Dr. Marshall who really took the lead on things. Adams was nominally the second in command, but he and Frank Wilde were nearly as exhausted as Shackleton. Thus, Marshall became the de facto boss, at least for a time. The team would keep a good pace down the glacier. The weather was good, and they could use the sail to help them move the sledge forward. Shackleton even regained some of its strength and at one point led the team through a series of crevasses. But again, food was a serious issue. The men needed 6,000 or more calories in a day in this situation, and they were lucky to get a third of that. On January 26th, food for the day consisted of a bit of pemmican and pony maize for breakfast, tea and two ounces of chocolate for lunch, and a mug of cocoa for dinner. Frankly, they were starving to death, and they still had 400 miles, or 640 kilometers, to go. The mental and physical strain was almost unbearable. Marshall would turn to his medicine chest to help the men through these times, dispensing forced March tablets. These pills contained cocaine and caffeine. Cocaine, at this time, was a common ingredient in medicines, often helped with pain. Still, the men were so exhausted they could barely walk. They were trudging along at less than a mile per hour. They got within three miles of their next depot, but were so wiped out, they had to pitch a tent and rest. The next day, they made only two miles in four hours. And then, just a mile from the depot, Adams and Wild collapsed. They were simply exhausted and starving and couldn't go any further. Shackleton wasn't much better. This may have been the bleakest of any moment on the expedition. The men were only a mile away from food, but most of them couldn't even take another step. The only one with the strength to go on was Dr. Marshall, who volunteered to make a go for the depot and come back with food. Thus, Marshall would trudge on alone and reach the depot. He would take only a couple of lumps of sugar for himself before loading up with pony meat, cheese, biscuits, and pemmican. By the time he got back to the others, none of them had eaten solid food for almost two days. It was so bad, Shackleton said, These were the worst two days ever spent in our lives. The famished men greedily dug into the food, which was a feast to them. Frank Wilde said of the meal, Good God, how we did enjoy it. Their strength renewed, for now, the men continued on and it was not long before they reached the great ice barrier, leaving the mountains and Beardmore Glacier behind them. This was welcome, especially for Shackleton, as the thin air was no longer an issue, and the cold and winds were not as severe. However, the men's health continued to decline, as they began to suffer from dysentery, which meant severe diarrhea and cramps and dehydration. Wilde was the first to be stricken. He couldn't eat anything other than a few biscuits a day. It made him terribly weak, and he could barely walk, much less help pull the sledge. And this would lead to an incident that would seal the fates of Shackleton and Wilde, intertwining them forever. One morning, for breakfast, the men, who were all terribly hungry, each got a single biscuit. Without fanfare, Shackleton gave his to Wilde. Wilde was overwhelmed by the gesture, saying, I do not suppose that anyone else in the world can thoroughly realize how much generosity and sympathy was shown by this. I do, by God. I shall never forget it. Thousands of pounds would not have bought that one biscuit. There was no question now, Wilde was Shackleton's man. For the rest of his life, he would follow the boss wherever he went. Dysentery would soon spread to everyone, making them all weak, and unfortunately, the medicine marshal dispensed to combat the problem made them all groggy. Thus, progress was slow. Wilde was the worst off, going six straight days without eating solid food. He wrote, quote, If I don't soon get over it, I'm afraid I shall have to be left on the barrier, End quote. On February 4th, the effects were so debilitating, none of the men could go on. Shackleton wrote in his diary that day, quote, cannot write anymore. All down with acute dysentery? No march possible. Our food lies ahead, and death stalks us from behind, End quote. And death, in the form of starvation and illness, was stalking the four men. And we can't forget that time was running out. They had to reach McMurdo Sound, still 240 miles, or 385 kilometers, away by March 1st. If they got there late, there was a good chance that they would be stuck in Antarctica for another year. Despite the cold, hunger, fatigue, and illness, there was a glimmer of hope as the men's health slowly began to improve. They drew on their willpower and determination and desperation and pushed on. On February 13th, the four would stumble into their next supply depot. They were saved for now. The slog would continue, but the men were getting weaker by the day. In the past, under similar conditions, they would cover 20 miles or 32 kilometers, but those numbers were falling by the day. 20 became 15, and then 12, and then 10. On February 15th, Shackleton celebrated his 35th birthday. As a present, the men dug up some shreds of tobacco and rolled him a thin cigarette. Shackleton loved it, saying, quote, It was delicious. Quote. Four days later, the team would get a glimpse of hope when they saw the top of Mount Erebus, which was on Ross Island. They were getting closer. The next day, they would reach Depot A, finding a cache of supplies, including sausage, eggs, porridge, and tobacco, the latter from the Tabard Tobacco Company, who Shackleton had a sponsorship deal with. Now, I want to stop and set the stage for the last stretch of our story. First, the next depot was 70 miles, or 105 kilometers away. At least, this was where there was supposed to be a depot. Let me explain that. Shackleton had given orders to Ernest Joyce to establish a depot at a specific location on their path back to the coast. The big question was, had Joyce done that? And if so, how were they to spot it? Second thing, I've mentioned that the team had to get back to the camp at Cape Royds but I want to clarify that this isn't necessarily the case. Again, let me explain. Shackleton had left orders for someone to be stationed at Hutt Point, 20 miles south of Cape Royds, at the southern tip of Ross Island. There was an observational point next to the camp, and someone was to be stationed there and be on the lookout for a signal from the southern pole team. Also, there was a chance that Hutt Point would be open to the sea, which meant that Nimrod could get close to the camp. This meant that if Shackleton could just reach the coast, there was a chance that he could signal for help. Of course, there was no guarantee that this would happen. If the ice was bad, there was a chance Nimrod would have to leave earlier than March 1st. So that's it. It was now down to finding the next supply depot, and then getting to the coast by March 1st, and praying that Nimrod was still in the area. So north went Shackleton and the men, now driven more by desperation than anything. Although I do want to note that the food at Depot A had revived their strength considerably. Unfortunately, nature would not cooperate with Shackleton and his team. One day a blizzard struck and the temperatures dropped to negative 35 Celsius, or negative 37 degrees Fahrenheit. But the men would plow forward. They made 20 miles, or 32 kilometers, on consecutive days, and on February 24th, they would sight a 10-foot-high stack of snow and three flags. It was Joyce's depot. The man had marked it well. By the way, Joyce had only stocked the depot three weeks earlier, using two sledges and the eight dogs. Joyce was one of the few who believed in using the dogs. Anyhow, at the depot, they found mutton, eggs, and plum pudding. They had not eaten that much in ages. There was also a note from Joyce saying that Nimrod had arrived safely, under the command of Captain Evans. The next day, February 25th, they set out again, but then nature and illness struck. Diarrhea returned, along with a blizzard. Marshall was so sick, he could barely move, and the weather was so severe the men would have to stop and spend a full day confined to their tent, despite the fact that they only had four days until Nimrod departed. The next day, the men would set out again, Shackleton noted that Marshall, despite being in agony, never complained. On February 27th, the men would make a forced march of 21 hours, going 24 miles or 38 kilometers. Hut Point was now 30 miles or 48 kilometers away. Nimrod was due to sail in just 36 hours, but Marshall was utterly spent. He literally could not move. Shackleton, who was still plagued by terrible headaches, would thus elect to leave Marshall and Adams in the tent and set out with Wild in a desperate attempt to reach the coast. They brought with them some food and their sleeping bags. The two men would set out at 4.30 that afternoon and march until 11 a.m. the next day, stopping only to eat a bit of food. As they got closer to hut point, Shackleton would take out his heliograph. A heliograph is a signaling device, sort of like reflecting the sun off a mirror. He aimed the device at Observation Hill, which, as noted, was next to the Discovery Huts. With luck, someone would be there and acknowledge them. But much to the men's dismay, no signal was returned. Shackleton feared that Nimrod was already gone, forced to flee the area due to dangerous ice. They could only press onward to Hut Point and hope. By mid-afternoon on the 28th of February, they ran out of food and abandoned their sleeping bags and gear. Shackleton would say to Wilde, Frank, old man, it's the old dog for the hard road every time, End quote. He was referring to the fact that the two 35-year-old men were slogging their way north and the 20-somethings, Marshall and Adams, were back on the barrier. The two men went hard, even as they were again engulfed in a blizzard. Once in the haze, they thought that they saw men coming towards them, but it turned out to just be some penguins. And then, as Shackleton and Wild came to the top of a slope, they caught sight of McMurdo Sound. At that moment, their hopes were shattered. There was no sign of Nimrod. Wilde said that they were, quote, beyond speech, end quote. They could only continue on to the huts and pray. Shackleton and Wild, exhausted and freezing, would reach hut point and find it abandoned. In one of the huts, they found a note from Edgeworth David. He said that Nimrod would be halfway between Hut Point and Cape Royds, 10 miles to the north, until February 26th. Of course, it was February 28th. They were two days late. Had the ship departed? The two men were desperate. They decided to try and set fire to one of the smaller huts to make a signal, but they struggled to get the building lit. And thus, they tried to attach a flag to a big wooden cross assigned to Nimrod in case someone was out there in the distance with a telescope However, the men's hands were so cold, they couldn't even tie a knot. Frustrated, they retreated to one of the huts to try and warm up. There, they ate some food that had been left, biscuits and onions, and tried to get the blood flowing in their bodies. It was early morning on March 1st when they tried again. They were able to get the flag raised and, more importantly, set the hut ablaze. The smoke would be their best chance to be seen. It all depended on if Nimrod was still out there. The two men would not have to wait long. A short time later, out of the mist, Nimrod would appear, steaming right for them. Wilde wrote, quote, No happier sight ever met the eyes of man, Two hours later, Shackleton and Wilde were on board Nimrod, eating bacon and fried bread. Everyone, of course, asked the question, had they reached the pole? The answer was, almost. The men of Nimrod, by the way, had assumed Shackleton and the others were dead. Now, Shackleton and Wilde were safe, but there was more to do. Shackleton, after just four hours, would return to the barrier with a team to go rescue Adams and Marshall. Wild was too exhausted to come along, but Shackleton was not going to let the rescue party go without him. The team pressed hard and reached the two men on March 2nd. They would return to Hut Point later the next evening. A flare was set off to signal Nimrod of their return. By the early hours of March 4th, 1909, the entire southern party was back on board Nimrod. Shackleton could now rest. He had barely slept for five days, traveling 100 miles or 160 kilometers in that time. By the way, I do want to give you an answer to one mystery, and that was, why was there no one at Hutt Point when Shackleton had given orders for that exact thing? Well, the answer is that Shackleton's orders were somewhat hazy, and that had left Captain Evans of the Nimrod to have to make some difficult decisions as they were preparing to depart the area. As March first approached, he had felt that Shackleton was lost, and thus he elected not to man Hutt Point, especially as the ice was getting dangerous in McMurdo Sound. Luckily, things turned out alright, so Shackleton did not hold the decision against anyone. So, with the men on board, Nimrod would beat a hasty retreat from Hut Point, as the ice was getting more dangerous by the hour. If they lingered, they risked getting iced in. The ship would sail past their camp at Cape Royds. the men singing Auld Lang Syne as they did. They then gave the hut, which had been their home for a year, three cheers. They had left a year of provisions for fifteen men at the hut. If Shackleton and his team had not reached Nimrod on time, it would have been their home had they managed to reach it, which was not a given. By the way, if Shackleton's team had not made it back in time, Douglas Mawson would have stayed, along with two other volunteers, and gone out looking for signs of the South Pole team. Mawson and the two volunteers would have been forced to spend another year in Antarctica as well. Everyone was happy that things had not reached that point. Now, one quick note and one sidetrack. First, Shackleton's hut still exists to this day and has been restored. You can find pictures online, or just go to ExplorersPodcast.com, and I have put some links to a site where you can see it. They have tried to keep the hut as true to its original form as possible. It's pretty cool. Now that done, I have a sidetrack. And it's a weird one, but I do want to share it. I mentioned that there was a full year of supplies left at the hut. Amongst those supplies was some whiskey. Well, in 2010, as teams were working to restore the hut, five crates were found under it. Two of the crates contained brandy, and three contained McKinley's Scotch Whiskey. In 2010, McKinley's was no longer a brand, and their formula was long lost. Well, three bottles of the stuff would be shipped back to White and McKay, which owns the McKinley brand. Their master blender, Richard Peterson, would craft an exact replica of the 100-year-old whiskey, and thus McKinley's rare old Highland malt whiskey was born, or perhaps reborn is a better term. The original batch sold out quickly, and now a bottle of it sells for hundreds of dollars. It was such a success, the company now mass markets the whiskey as Shackleton's blended malt whiskey. I bought a bottle several years ago and gave it to my son, whose first name is McKinley. He was only 18 or 19 at the time, so we packed it away and cracked it last year on his 21st birthday. As far as a blended scotch, it was okay, nothing special, but it was cool to have, and a portion of the sales goes to the Antarctic Heritage Trust, which works to preserve and protect sites in Antarctica, such as Shackleton's hut. So, sidetrack done. Back to the story. Now, before heading back to New Zealand, Shackleton wanted to trace the coast of Victoria land. This was the land on the west coast of the Ross Sea, where the Magnetic South Pole team had gone. However, by March 9th, the ice was too dangerous. At one point, the ice pack surrounded the ship for a short time, and the threat of being trapped was very real. Thus, when a narrow channel in the ice opened, Nimrod took the opportunity and gratefully headed north. Next stop, New Zealand. And with that, it brings the adventure mostly to a close. But don't think we are done. There's still a lot more to talk about. Let's start by taking an inventory of the accomplishments of Ernest Shackleton and the Nimrod expedition. Shackleton and his geographic South Pole team had done some extraordinary stuff. They had gone 1,755 miles, or 2,800 kilometers, including relaying sledges as needed, and they had reached a new farther south point, within 100 miles of the pole. In the process, they had discovered Beardmore Glacier, crossed the Transantarctic Mountains, and stood on the Antarctic Plateau. And they had done it by stretching three months of rations to four. The return journey was epic in its near tragedy. There were so many times where disaster and death was just a breath away. But the men had persevered, displaying an almost unheard of determination not to fail. It was brilliant and inspiring. No, the men had not reached the South Pole, but Shackleton had blazed a path to it. Now, we cannot forget about the deeds of the magnetic pole team as well. In one hundred twenty two days, they had gone twelve hundred sixty miles, or two thousand kilometers, including seven hundred forty miles, or eleven 1, hundred ninety kilometers, relaying sledges. It was the longest man hauling feat ever achieved at the time and of course they had reached the magnetic south pole. Shackleton was thrilled by their accomplishments. As a note, the scientific achievements of the expedition were good. I mean really good. The expedition expanded humanity's understanding of the continent by leaps and bounds. There were, of course, geographic discoveries, but there was also important work done regarding biology, magnetism, zoology, geology, and much more. And I want to point out, not a life was lost, and no dogs. One of the show's Twitter followers, when I covered the Discovery Expedition, said something like, oh no, not dogs. Dogs get eaten in these kinds of stories. Well, not this time. They made it back, although I can't say that for the ponies. Now, we won't flog the failings of the expedition. We went through the what-ifs in the last episode. Ponies instead of dogs, no skis, the camp location. The first two items were errors on Shackleton's part, but it is what it is, and the team had done some amazing stuff, despite their handicap. One thing I want to mention in the what-if category is regarding the makeup of Shackleton's team. Shackleton was said to have lamented not having someone like Joyce on the run to the pole. He wondered what if he had selected better, more robust men. Well, the answer is that the result would have been pretty much the same. All the people in Shackleton's team did a good job. The problem was not the men, but the lack of food. Swapping Joyce for Adams or whomever would have not gotten them another 200 miles not so long as Shackleton insisted on using ponies and ignoring the skis. Might they have gotten a little farther? Perhaps. But again, what had really thwarted Shackleton was the lack of food. So, with all that said, it's time to get Nimrod back to New Zealand. On March 23, 1909, Nimrod sailed into Half Moon Bay on New Zealand's South Island. Shackleton's first stop was the Telegraph office, where he sent a 2,500-word cable to the Daily Mail newspaper in London. The Daily Mail had bought first rights to Shackleton's story for 2,000 pounds. Within days, Shackleton's name was spread throughout the world. On March 25th, Nimrod chugged into Littleton Harbor to the cheers of thousands. Congratulatory telegrams poured into Shackleton, including one from King Edward. Shackleton would lunch with New Zealand's Prime Minister and give a lecture to 3,000 adoring people in Christchurch. The lecture raised 300 pounds, which Shackleton donated to the local hospital, despite the fact that he was in debt by 20,000 pounds. Ah, but this was not the time to worry about money. For Shackleton, he was in his glory. Unpaid bills, broken promises, none of that was an issue amid the cheers. Of the moment, he would write, quote, "...it seemed as though nothing but happiness could ever enter life again." Around the world, people cheered and praised the heroics of Shackleton and his team. Norwegian explorer Roald Munson was effusive in his praise, saying, quote, "...what Nansen is to the north, Shackleton is to the south." He also added, the English nation has, by the deed of Shackleton won of victory which can never be surpassed. End quote. Nansen was Friedjoff Nansen, the legendary Norwegian explorer. Nansen, by the way, was impressed by Shackleton's deeds. He said to Leonard Darwin, the son of Charles Darwin and the current President of the Royal Geographical Society, that Shackleton's story quote, reads like a fairy tale and reveals to me a new world. End quote. Nansen would even write to Shackleton's wife, Emily, and offer his congratulations. And speaking of Emily, Shackleton cabled his wife, boasting of how their lives were going to be rainbows and unicorns. And he pledged with her that he was done with adventuring, saying, quote, Never again, my beloved, will there be such a separation as this has been. End quote. Now, the public loved Shackleton. His exploits were thrilling and daring. In England, it sort of thrust Britain back to the top of the world pyramid of accomplishing cool stuff. Shackleton's deeds made people proud. But privately, many were not so happy. Clements Markham, the former president of the Royal Geographical Society, hinted that Shackleton's calculations were incorrect or a lie. He couldn't believe that a mere merchant navy man could do so much better than his guy, Robert Falcon Scott. Others tried to downplay the expedition's accomplishments, pointing out that Shackleton had, after all, not gotten to the pole. The Royal Geographical Society offered muted praise for Shackleton, pointing out that he owed everything to the man they were backing, Scott. And we can't forget about the resentment over the use of McMurdo Sound as a base. Edward Wilson, Shackleton's former friend from the Discovery Expedition, washed his hands of his former comrade, saying, quote, As for Shackleton, I feel the less said the better. End quote. Scott called Shackleton a liar. Others called him a fraud and a traitor. And those were some of the nicer things. However, the public couldn't care less about that stuff. Shackleton, who had been a minor celebrity prior to the expedition, was now a full-fledged hero. He was a hard-working merchant navy guy, not some titled noble or snooty rich guy. To the public, he was one of them, and it certainly helped that Shackleton had a unique ability to connect with others, and not just in person, but also in print. Now, Shackleton would not rush back to England, and instead do a short lecture tour of New Zealand and Australia. He was gracious with his praise of the rest of the expedition members, and was very big about stressing that everything had been a team effort. The people and press loved it. Shackleton had this mix of casual confidence, humor, and even humility. It was a great combination, and it was a harbinger of what was to come. Now, another thing Shackleton began at this time was his book about the Nimrod Expedition. For this, he would use a ghostwriter, a man named Edward Saunders, who was a reporter for the Littleton Times in Christchurch. Shackleton would sit with Saunders and dictate to him the details of his adventures, plus give him access to the expedition's journals and notes. Saunders would turn out to be a good choice— he was not a man looking for the spotlight, and very much tried to keep the story in the voice and manner of Shackleton. With his lecture series concluded, Shackleton would head home. Along the way, he would take a mail steamer, the Isis, through the Suez Canal. The ship's captain was Albert Armitage, the man who had been second-in-command on the Discovery Expedition. Armitage said of the reunion, quote, I noticed a great change in him. He was no longer so dreamy. He was full of restless, nervous energy, and ideas for another journey, End quote. Even then, just weeks after barely getting back alive, Shackleton was thinking about what to do next. Shackleton's return to England was announced for June 14th, 1909. He would come by train to London's Charing Cross Station. However, Shackleton would actually get to Dover two days earlier and spend some time with Emily. It was the first time they'd seen each other in almost two years. With Emily, Shackleton discussed the expedition's failure to reach the pole. He asked her if, quote, a live donkey is better than a dead lion, end quote. She replied, quote, yes, darling, as far as I'm concerned, end quote. And that was it for the two regarding the subject. Her husband had done his very best, and she was immensely proud of him. That he was home and with his family was what was important to her. Shackleton's arrival in London was a madhouse. Thousands of people were waiting at the train station to greet England's newest hero. Shackleton arrived with his wife and children and father. He was greeted by various luminaries, including the Royal Geographical Society's president, Leonard Darwin. Sir Clements Markham was there as well, along with Robert Falcon Scott. The latter two must have nearly choked at the adulation given to Shackleton. Scott's one satisfaction must have been that Shackleton had failed to reach the pole That, he believed, was his destiny. But we'll talk more about that next time. Anyhow, the celebrations and parties and lectures would continue. Then, on June 28th, Prince George, the Prince of Wales and heir to the throne, would award Shackleton a gold medal from the Royal Geographical Society, struck specially for the occasion. Silver replicas of the medal were made for the men of the Nimrod party. Eight thousand people would pack Albert Hall for the ceremony. By the way, the Royal Geographical Society did not give Shackleton their more prestigious patron's medal, and never would. To them, Shackleton was an adventurer, not a scientist, and they would never forgive him for that. Also, it was said that when they decided to give him the award, they wanted Shackleton's medal to be smaller than the one presented to Scott. It was a petty thing, but an honest reflection of the situation. Thankfully, someone pointed out the bad optics, and the medal ultimately given to Shackleton was the same size as Scott's. So the whirlwind would continue for Shackleton. He gave lectures, attended dinners and luncheons, that sort of thing. Madame Tussaud's wax museum in London made a sculpture of him, and Shackleton's alma mater, Dulwich College, had him as the featured speaker and dispenser of prizes at their annual awards banquet. Shackleton joked that it was the closest he ever got to an academic award. On July 12th, Shackleton would be invited to Buckingham Palace by personal invitation of King Edward and Queen Alexandra. There he was installed as a commander of the Royal Victorian Order. He showed the monarchs his slides from the expedition and told them his tales. He was definitely moving up in the world, and would find himself invited to personal events hosted by the King and Queen. Another indication of Shackleton's growing popularity was his invitation into the Marlborough Club in London. This club was limited to 450 members, and only the elite of society got invited. He had indeed arrived. Now, Shackleton was loving all the attention and accolades, but sooner or later he was going to have to face up to the fact that he owed a lot of money to a lot of people. And his cavalier attitude toward all the bills didn't help the situation. A polar exhibition was set up on the Thames River with Nimrod as one of the prized attractions. 30,000 people would tour the little ship, raising 2,000 pounds. And what did Shackleton do with the cash? Well, he gave it to the local hospitals. Also, I want to mention another scheme of Shackleton's, which he thought would make him a pile of money, but would amount to nothing. This involved postage stamps, and there's something really interesting about it, so I will share you the details. Shackleton had got New Zealand's Prime Minister to make him a postmaster, and he had been given 240,000 sheets of New Zealand postage stamps. The stamps were all cancelled, so they couldn't be used. Now, when you cancel a postage stamp after it's been used, you stamp on it the location of where it was processed. Well, Shackleton would cancel the stamps with the location of King Edward Seventh land. These were the only stamps in the world that had come through Antarctica. He thought that collectors would gobble them up for big money. But that did not happen. People just weren't that interested. However, I do want to note that these stamps can nowadays fetch thousands of dollars. But for Shackleton in 1909, it was pretty much a bust. Now, that's all kind of cool, but I shared it with you because I wanted to take note of the location Shackleton had stamped on the canceled sheets, and that was King Edward the Seventh land. People argue that it demonstrates that Shackleton had fully intended on setting up his winter camp in King Edward VII land. Circumstances forced him to McMurdo Sound, not some secret plan to go there from the start. Otherwise, he would have stamped them as being cancelled in Victoria land. Alrighty, stamp story done. Let's move on. So Shackleton was, as noted, in debt to the tune of about 20,000 pounds. Well, he would get bailed out by the British government when some officials, aiming to look good for the voting public, who loved Shackleton, came to the explorer's aid. And thus Shackleton would get a 20,000 pound grant, essentially clearing up his debts. It was a huge relief. By the way, one of the first people to get paid back was William Beardmore, who Shackleton had stiffed two years earlier. Despite getting repaid and having a glacier named after him, Beardmore never forgave Shackleton for absconding with his cash. And so, as 1909 came to a close, there were two major events I want to mention. The first was in November with the publication of Shackleton's book, The Heart of the Antarctic. The book was well-received by critics and the public. It was, Shackleton hoped, a sign of big things for him in the future. And the second event occurred on December 14th, when Shackleton would be knighted, the first Antarctic knighthood given since James Ross in 1843. He was now Sir Ernest Shackleton. So things looked pretty good for 35-year-old Ernest Shackleton. He was home with his family, he had fame and prestige, and he had hopes for making his fortune. But let's not fool ourselves. Shackleton was a restless soul, and all the money and success in the world would probably not make him happy. We know that, sooner or later, the cold of Antarctica will come calling again. Now, before I leave you today, I want to take a few minutes to talk about some of the men of the Nimrod expedition, as we have spent a lot of time with them. I said at the start of the expedition that many of these men would go on to do some pretty amazing things, and that is very true. Now, I'm going to limit my discussion to people who we are pretty much done with in this series. But individuals who will be back with us, such as Frank Wilde, will save for a later episode. Okay, that said, here we go. I will start with our geologists. The first person I'll mention is Raymond Priestley, one of the young geologists on the expedition. Priestley would return to the Antarctic with Robert Falcon Scott on the Terra Nova expedition and almost die in the process. He was decorated for bravery in World War I and then would have a successful career in research, writing, and academia. Priestley would be knighted in 1949 for his services to education. He would later be awarded the Patron's Gold Medal by the Royal Geographical Society, for whom he was president from 1961 to 1963. He died in 1974 at the age of 87. Another of our geologists was Philip Brocklehurst, a.k.a. Sir Philip Brocklehurst. Brocklehurst was initially going to take part in Shackleton's Endurance Expedition, but he would get his commission in the Army and be called to duty instead. He would serve in both World Wars and was injured in Belgium in 1914. He died in 1975 at the age of 88. And our third geologist was Douglas Mawson. Mawson, who had been the key person of the Magnetic South Pole team, would go on to do some great things. Mawson would go on to organize and lead the Australasian Antarctic Expedition from 1911 to 1914. By the way, I'm not sure if I said that right. Anyhow, the expedition explored thousands of miles of territory, made important scientific observations, and collected geological and botanical samples and data. Mawson was the sole survivor of the three-man Far Eastern party, and in that time, he would travel alone for over a month to get back to his base. I want to mention that there is a really good podcast called the Australian Histories Podcast, and the host, Jenny, did a great five-part series about Mawson and his expedition. It's wonderful stuff, and if you want to know more about Mawson and his adventures, I highly recommend it. Just look up Australian Histories Podcast on your podcast app, or check out the show notes or our website. I put a link to the series in both places. Otherwise, Mawson would be knighted in 1914 and go on to spend most of his life focused on his field of geology and academia. He died in 1958 at the age of 76. He is considered one of Australia's greatest explorers. Our next person is Edgeworth David, Mawson's former teacher. Despite his struggles on the magnetic pole Trek, he was welcomed home as a hero in World War I, he would organize the Australian Mining Corps when he heard about the need for tunneling on the Western Front in Europe. He would rise to the rank of Lieutenant colonel. After the war, David would teach and write, publishing his definitive work, The Geology of the Commonwealth of Australia. He died in 1934 at the age of 76, one of Australia's most respected scientists. His daughter, Margaret McIntyre, was the first woman elected to the Parliament of Tasmania. Jameson Boyd Adams, Shackleton's second-in-command, is our next person. Adams would give up exploration after the Nimrod expedition and enter the civil service. He would serve with distinction in the Navy in World War I and was badly injured in 1917, but survived his wounds. He would go back to the civil service after the war, but return to active duty in the Navy in World War II. He would be knighted in 1948. He died in 1962 at the age of 82. Interesting postscript on Adams. In 2008, one of his grandsons, Henry Adams, along with two others, trekked from Shackleton's hut at Cape Royds all the way to the South Pole on foot, hauling their own supplies. Also, one of Adams's great-grandsons, David Cornell, took part in an expedition that marched from Shackleton's furthest south point to the South Pole, essentially covering the final 97 miles, and thus completing some unfinished family business. The last two people I'll mention are the expedition's doctors, Alistair McKay and Eric Marshall. McKay, who had been on the magnetic pole trek, would return to the polar regions in 1913 with the Canadian Arctic Expedition, also known as the Carlock Expedition. The results were tragic. The expedition's ship would get stuck in the ice and eventually crushed. Eleven of the team's 25 men would perish in the coming months. McKay would die of exposure while struggling across the Arctic ice. He was just 35 years old. Our final man is Dr. Eric Marshall. Marshall is interesting because of his lifelong distaste for Shackleton. He never let up on his former boss. He said that after his death, he would provide information about Shackleton that was damning. But nothing ever emerged. His vitriol towards Shackleton is, in a lot of ways, just sort of weird. It seems so misplaced amongst the praise of the other men in the expedition. No matter after the Nimrod expedition, Marshall would go on to serve in the medical corps in both World War I and World War II. He died in 1964 at the age of 83. Now those are the people I wanted to talk about who were important members of Shackleton's expedition. However, there is something else I want to mention, and that is the ship that the expedition is named after, Nimrod. The Nimrod, while old and small and cramped, had proven to be a durable and sturdy ship, and everyone came to admire her reliability. Well, after the expedition, the ship would, as noted, take part in a polar exhibition. It would then be sold and sent back into service. Ten years later, in January 1919, Nimrod would run aground on the Barber Sands off the Norfolk coast. The ship would be battered to pieces by the North Sea, only two of her twelve crew surviving the ordeal. And that was it for Nimrod. And that really gets us wrapped up for today. I'll close out by saying thank you to the supporters of the show. I can't thank you enough. Some of you donate via the website. Others share the show with friends and family. Or give us nice reviews on Apple Podcasts. That's so great. And I have to say thanks to my Patreon supporters. This includes Dave, Craig, John Paul, Eileen, Roger Phillip, and many others. Your generosity is appreciated and helps make this show a reality. So that is it for today. Again, thanks for coming along on the Nimrod Expedition. Next time, we'll go along with Sir Ernest Shackleton and prepare him for his next adventure, which will, to be honest, be more harrowing and more thrilling than his last one. Thank you very much for listening, take care, and I will see you next time.